Introduction to The Life of Jesus Critically Examined. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Jesus Critically Examined by David Friedrich Strauss. Translated from the Fourth German Edition by George Eliot. Introduction to the Present Edition by Professor Otto Fleiderer. The Leben Jesu of David Friedrich Strauss, which was published in the year 1835, marked an epoch in the history of theology. On the one hand, this book represents the crisis in theology at which the doubts and critical objections of centuries as to the credibility of the Bible narratives had accumulated in such overwhelming volume as to break through and sweep away all the defenses of orthodox apologetics. On the other hand, in the very completeness of the destructive criticism of past tradition lay the germs of a new science of constructive critical inquiry the work of which was to bring to light the truth of history it is quite true that the life of jesus of eighteen thirty five was far from perfect as judged by the present standard of scientific criticism and biblical science has long since advanced beyond it nevertheless it cannot be disputed that it takes rank amongst the standard works which are secure of a permanent place in literature for all time, for the reason that they give final expression to the spirit of their age, and represent typically one of its characteristic tendencies. The liberating and purifying influence which such works exert on their own time, as well as the service they render in opening out new lines of thought, lends to them, for all coming generations, a peculiar value as admirable weapons in the great fight for truth and freedom indeed if our scientists are to be believed when they tell us that the development of the individual is only an abbreviated repetition of the similar but much slower phases of the development of the species it is hardly too much to maintain that in the present and in the future every individual who determines to make his way from the bondage of a naive trust in authority and tradition into the freedom and light of mature thought must pass through precisely that stage of thorough-going logical negative criticism which is represented by strauss's work in a unique manner as according to christian ethics the formation of a pure moral character is possible only by the death of the old adam the rise of true religious convictions is by a similar stube und werde die and come to life the imaginary lights of our mythological tradition must be put out that the eye may distinguish the false from the true in the twilight of the biblical origins of our religion the ancient structures of belief which the childish fancy of men had constructed of truth and poetry wahrheit und deitung must be taken down and cleared away in order that a new erection of more durable materials may be raised to all earnest seekers after truth the Leben Jesu of Strauss may be helpful not as supplying the truth ready to hand, but as stripping the bandages of prejudice from the eyes, and so enabling them clearly to see and rightly to seek it. For these reasons, it is obvious that the publication of a new edition of the English translation of this work needs no justification. It is only those who consider the first appearance of the book inexcusable and unfortunate that can call in question the desirability of its republication but no one can hold such an opinion who is able to follow the course of the history of the religious thought of protestantism 
the critical process which reached its conclusion in strauss's book with its negative or revolutionary results was latent from the beginning in the lifeblood of protestantism the theologians of the reformed churches of the sixteenth century subjected the traditions of catholic church history to keen historical criticism and if they did not then think of extending its operations to biblical tradition we are justified in recognizing in the well-known declarations of luther as to the inferior value of certain books of the bible and as to the unimportance of physical in comparison with spiritual miracles plain predictions of the line of development which protestant theology was destined ultimately to take it is intelligible enough that the criticism of the bible could not arise amongst the orthodox theologians of the sixteenth and seventeenth centuries they were restrained by a rigid doctrine of inspiration from an unprejudiced treatment of the bible and were moreover too much absorbed in dogmatic controversies and the defense of their confessions of faith to feel the need of more searching biblical studies it was amongst english freethinkers and deists that the credibility of the biblical narratives was first seriously assailed and with so much temper as to greatly detract from the scientific value of the result thomas woolston's discourses on the miracles of our saviour six in number published seventeen twenty seven through seventeen twenty nine are specially noteworthy they attack the literal interpretation of the miracles as ludicrous and offensive and advocate the allegorical interpretation of them as figures and parables of spiritual truths it is possible to find in wollstone's theory an anticipation of the mythical principle of interpretation which strauss opposes to the rationalistic one Reimarus, the author of the Wolfenbüttel fragments by the publication of which lessing threw german theology into a ferment occupies the same position as the english deists and indeed owed much to their influence but at the same time a noteworthy difference is observable from the very first between the way in which lessing treated these questions and their treatment by the earlier freethinkers and the difference is characteristic of the two schools german rationalism bears the marks of its origin in the idealistic optimism of the philosophy of leibniz and wolf and remains in sympathy with the ethical spirit of the biblical religion whilst the but faintly religious naturalism of the english deists leads them with their rejection of the biblical miracles to attack the religion of the bible and drag down into the mire its representatives and heroes with this the german rationalists have no sympathy they were unable to treat the biblical narratives of miracles as historical occurrences but they were not prepared on that account to regard them as deceit and delusion on the part of biblical heroes or as the invention of biblical narrators their reverence for the bible and its religion kept them from both of these inferences they tried to get over the difficulty in two ways either they looked upon the narratives of miracles particularly those of the old testament as popular religious legends traditions or myths of the same kind as the myths to be met with in all heathen religions or on the other hand regarding them as containing the actual history of perfectly natural events they ascribed the miraculous appearance and form which they bear simply to the mistaken judgment of the narrators or in other cases to the erroneous view of the interpreters the latter method was employed especially by dr paulus 
in his commentary on the gospels in which he seeks with a great display of learning and ingenuity to explain all the miracles of the new testament the theologian schleiermacher also made frequent use of it in his lectures on the life of jesus and traces of it are to be met with even in the commentaries of theologians of the supernaturalist school as for instance olhausen's the inexcusable violence which was thereby done to the biblical narratives by which they are forced to say something quite different from what the unsophisticated narrators intended them to say according to the plain sense of their words was not felt nor were these interpreters conscious of how much the gospels are deprived of their choicest treasures of ideal truth and poetic beauty by this method of treatment and this only for the sake of securing instead miserable commonplace stories as the final outcome of critical examination the favor with which this radically false rationalistic interpretation of the gospels was received by very many german theologians at the beginning of this century finds its sole explanation and excuse in the prevailing view of the time that our gospels were written very soon after the death of jesus during the first generation of christians and two of them by eyewitnesses the apostles matthew and john on this supposition the occurrence in the gospels of unhistorical elements of religious legends such as might be without hesitation allowed in the old testament could not be thought of or if the admissibility of this point of view was granted in the case of the birth stories of the opening chapters of matthew and luke as by de Vetta, objection was felt against its application to the miracles of the public life of jesus thus on the question of the historicity of the gospel narratives theologians held views which were confused undecided contradictory and lacking thoroughness this state of things could not last simple faith had at every point lost its security doubt attached to the miraculous narratives of the new no less than to those of the old testament but before strauss no one had had the courage to explain all these narratives of both testaments alike by the logical application of one and the same principle and mainly for the reason that the critics were all under the bondage of the supposition of the apostolic authorship of the gospels of matthew and john yet even this supposition had received various shocks prior to strauss critics had been unable to close their eyes to the fact that there are differences between these two gospels particularly of such a fundamental nature as to preclude the possibility of both being right and therefore of both having been written by eyewitnesses and apostles under the influence of dogmatic and sentimental motives schleiermacher and his disciples accepted it as an a priori certainty that john is to be preferred to matthew and from this secure position as was imagined these theologians assailed the narrative of matthew at all points and undermined the tradition of its apostolic authority but suppose the same arguments with which they assailed matthew might be used against their favorite evangelist john what if it could be shown that his narrative is in no respect more probable but on the contrary more improbable than that of matthew in that case must not the critical verdict which those theologians had given against matthew so triumphantly and without regard to its consequences apply equally to john 
and thereby overthrow the only remaining pillar of apostolic authority for the gospel tradition this logical consequence which was at that time deemed an unheard-of innovation notwithstanding the opinions of a few individual critics vogel brett schneider strauss had the courage to draw by that act he cast off the fetters by which the examination of the gospels had till then been bound and secured a free field for a thoroughgoing criticism of them since the external evidence of the authorship of the gospels is not of a kind or a date such as to compel us to consider the tradition of their apostolic origin established and as the matter of all the gospels alike is not free from historical improbability there is nothing strauss argued to prevent our complete abandonment of the historicity of their miraculous narratives though the rationalists continue to maintain it or our treating them as religious legends and myths similar to those which as was admitted the old testament contained the novelty in the work of strauss was not the application of the principle of myth to biblical narratives others had already made use of it in the case of the old and to some extent in the case of the new testament the originality lay in the uncompromising thoroughness with which the principle was applied to every section of the gospel story the originality lay in the merciless acumen and clearness with which the discrepancies between the gospels and the difficulties presented to the critical understanding by their narratives were laid bare and with which all the subterfuges of the supernaturalist apologists as well as all the forced and artificial interpretations of semi-critical rationalists were exposed thereby cutting off all ways of escape from the final consequences of criticism the merciless thoroughness and unreserved honesty with which criticism did its negative work in this book by exposing the baselessness of the supposed knowledge of the gospel history produced a profound shock amongst theologians and laymen it was not merely the untaught multitude who believed that the foundations of christianity must perish with the miraculous stories of the bible learned theologians were distressed as the daring critics so rudely and without any regard to consequences roused them from the illusions of their sentimental or speculative dogmatism and their precipitate treaty of peace between faith and knowledge as bauer truly said quote, strauss was hated because the spirit of the time was unable to look upon its own portrait which he held up before it in faithful clearly drawn lines the spirit of this age resists with all its power the proof of its ignorance on a matter about which it has long thought itself certain instead of acknowledging what had to be acknowledged if any progress was to be made all possible attempts were instituted to create fresh illusions as to the true state of the case by reviving obsolete hypotheses and by theological charlatanism but a higher certainty as to the truth of the gospel history can be attained in no other way than by acknowledging on the basis of strauss's criticism that our previous knowledge is no knowledge at all but here we come upon the limits of the criticism of strauss it brought home to men the fact of their want of knowledge but it did not conduct to the required new and positive knowledge this strauss was unable to do because he offered a critique of the gospel history only without a critique of the documents which form the sources of this history 
in these words bauer has accurately described the main defect of strauss's book when strauss drew from the discrepancies and contradictions of the various narratives of the gospels the conclusion that they have all alike little credibility the conclusion was intelligible enough in reply to the ingenious artifices of the traditional harmonists who maintained that in spite of the contradictions the evangelists were all alike worthy of credit but really this line of procedure on the part of strauss conformed as little as that of the harmonists to the principles of strict historical inquiry these principles require us to examine the relative value of the various sources with reference to their age to the situation the character the interests the aims of their author to assign accordingly to one account a higher measure of credibility than to another and so by distinguishing between what is better and what is not so well attested to make out what is probable and reach the original matter of fact it is true strauss made some advance towards such a differentiation of the relative value of the gospel narratives and particularly with reference to the inferior historical value of the johannine in comparison with the synoptic narrative he has made acute observations the worth of which ought to be estimated the higher as they boldly opposed the then dominant preference for the gospel of john and effectively prepared the way for the criticism of bauer but it was not strauss's forte to prepare as the foundation of the material critique of the gospel history a thorough critique of the literary sources nor in the state of the general science of criticism at the time could this be very well expected when all deductions have been made to strauss belongs the honor of having given by his criticism of the gospel narratives the most effective impulse to a more penetrating examination of the sources of the gospel story and of having prepared the way for this to no small extent particularly as regards the fourth gospel bauer's classical critique of this gospel completed in this direction the criticism of strauss and laid its foundation deeper as regards the synoptic gospels weisse and ewald holtzmann and volkmar did good work towards clearing up the relations of the gospels to each other especially in establishing the priority of mark by which a firmer basis was laid for the positive decision of the question as to the historical foundations of the gospel tradition the fruit of this critique of the sources carried on from various sides with painstaking industry was the new literature dealing with the life of jesus which just a generation after the first leben jesu of strauss took up again the problem it had raised but in a new fashion and with improved critical apparatus we shall have further on to refer to strauss's new life of jesus the same scholar weisse who was the first to point out the want in strauss's book of a more satisfactory critique of the sources and who had sought to supply this defect in his evangelische geschichte of eighteen thirty eight called attention at the same time to a defect in the mythical theory of strauss weisse was fully agreed with strauss so far that we must acknowledge the presence of religious myths in miraculous narratives of the bible but he was not satisfied with the way in which strauss had explained their origin according to strauss the early christians had simply transferred to jesus as the actual messiah the miraculous legends of the old testament 
out of which the jews were supposed to have composed the miraculous portrait of their expected messiah and he was right in thinking that the miraculous stories of the old testament do undoubtedly supply the motives and models of no few narratives of the new testament but not surely of all precisely the chief miracles the birth of jesus his baptism transfiguration resurrection the change of water into wine at cana the stilling of the storm and walking on the sea violence must be used to explain these miracles by reference to old testament types and the jewish idea of the messiah offers no lines corresponding to these at this point therefore to all events we must look about us for another method of explanation and Weisse was undoubtedly right in pointing to the spontaneous productivity of the christian spirit in the primitive church as the source of the miraculous narratives in which it gave expression in symbolic and allegorical forms to its ideal truth and the new inspired life of which it was conscious not that these narratives were intended by the narrators themselves to be merely allegories or symbolical illustrations of spiritual truths but the religious imagination gave birth to these illustrations after the manner of unconscious poetry that is without distinguishing between the poetic form and the essential truth of the idea believing as the religious imagination did in the ideal content of the narratives and being at the same time unable to give vivid and sensible expression to it in any other than the material form of outward miracles it had involuntarily come to believe also in the reality of the symbolical form of the narrative to which it had itself given rise it conceived idea and history both together in such inseparable combination as to confer on each equal truth and certainty in the production of such ideal narratives the same process is observable today in the experience of simple religious believers feeling the ideal truth of the content of their stories for they come to believe also in the reality of the outward history in which the idea has for them been incorporated but the critical understanding of the historical inquirer is permitted and indeed is bound to distinguish clearly and definitely as the simple-minded believer cannot do between the spiritual idea and the outward form of its representation and to find in the former both the productive power and the permanent kernel within the outward husk this explanation of the miraculous legends of the bible is not only more correct and profound than strauss's from the point of view of historical science but for the religious consciousness it is far less objectionable as weisse observes with truth inasmuch as in this case the legends do not appear as the worthless product of the idle play of the imagination but as the normal expression rationally and psychologically intelligible of the creative religious spirit which displays its treasures of ideal truth in this legendary and mythical poetry for the benefit of the originators and the wider world nor should it be left unnoticed that strauss himself had already indicated in a few cases this more profound explanation of myths by means of the religious idea at the close of his interpretation of the story of the transfiguration in section one hundred seven for instance he says we may see from this example very plainly how the natural system of explanation by insisting on the historical certainty of the narratives lets go their ideal truth 
sacrificing the content to the form of the story whereas the mythical interpretation by resigning the historical material body of such narratives really rescues and preserves their idea their soul and spirit he might however have unfolded the idea of the transfiguration with greater definiteness and fullness if he had not merely alluded to the dogmatic discussion of paul in second corinthians chapter three verse seven and following but had recognized it as the real theme of the gospel story and had interpreted the latter accordingly in the same way in the case of the story of the birth of jesus from luke chapters one and two strauss laid great emphasis on the analogies and figures of the old testament which after all could only contribute as secondary motives in the formation of this birth story while its real origin is to be sought in the pauline messianic idea of the son of god according to the spirit of holiness from romans chapter one verse four and first corinthians chapter fifteen verse forty five and following a fact strauss overlooked this defect takes a really surprising form when he comes to explain the miracles of the fourth gospel which in complete independence of any suggestion from the old testament are entirely based upon the dogmatic ideas of alexandrian theology and simply supply their transparent symbolic vestment how much more truthfully and profoundly can the miracle at cana or the rising of lazarus or the cure of the man born blind be interpreted from this point of view than from that of strauss in this respect bauer's interpretation of the fourth gospel was an immense advance upon strauss as the latter himself acknowledged subsequently with the above defects of strauss's method of interpretation is connected in the last place the fact that the outcome of his book in reference to the decisive question what then is the historical kernel of the evangelical tradition what the real character of jesus and of his work is meagre and unsatisfactory in the closing essay at the end of his work it is true he endeavored to restore dogmatically what he had destroyed critically but he effected this in a way which amounted to the transformation of religious faith in christ into a metaphysical allegory the predications of faith with regard to christ are to be regarded as containing predications as to the relations of the human race to the absolute as to the self-abasement of the infinite to the finite and the return of the infinite to itself as to mind and its power over nature and its dependence on it and the like in all this strauss was led astray by the influence of the hegelian philosophy which looked for the truth of religion in logical and metaphysical categories instead of in the facts and experiences of moral feeling and volition but as there is no essential relation between these metaphysical ideas and the person of jesus he is made arbitrarily as any one else might have been an illustration and example of absolute ideas to which he stands in no more intimate relation than the rest of the human race whereby the special historical importance of the originator of the christian community and of the first model of its religious and moral life is not only left without explanation but is lost altogether a result which does violence not merely to the religious consciousness but is unsatisfactory to historical science which is concerned to understand jesus 
as the originating source of Christianity. It is quite true that we can go with Strauss in his answer to the alternative of Ullmann, whether the church created the Christ of the Gospels or he the church, by declaring the alternative false, and the two things, in so far both tenable as the Christ of the Gospels is a creation of the faith of the church, but this faith an effect of the person of the historical Jesus. We find this answer to Ullmann just, but cannot free Strauss from the charge of having worked out in his book the first only of these two positions, and of having passed over the second. He has shown no more than that the church formed the mythical traditions about Jesus out of its faith in him as the Messiah. But how did the church come by the faith that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? To this question, which is the main question of the life of Jesus, Strauss gave his readers no answer. Undoubtedly, it can be urged in his defense that the criticism of the sources was at that time still in a condition of too great confusion and uncertainty to permit any successful answer to that problem of the historical kernel of the life of Jesus. Nevertheless, the difficulty of the matter could not relieve the historian of the duty of at least making an attempt to trace from the materials left to him as the residue of his critical analysis of the deeds and words of Jesus, the main outlines of his character, to bring out the peculiarity and originality of his religious genius, and in this way to discover in the original personality and reforming activity of Jesus, the originating cause of the rise of the community of his disciples and their faith in him as the Messiah and his divine mission. If, in his closing essay, Strauss had presented a religious and moral description of Jesus of this nature, instead of the metaphysical allegory as a substitute for the shattered mythological conception of tradition, though the objection of the church to his work would not have been wanting, it would then undoubtedly have taken a less passionately denunciatory form than was the case, in consequence of the purely negative character of the result unrelieved by any modifying conclusion. In proportion to the strength of the feeling of these defects, shared by readers of all parties, was the urgency of the duty laid upon scientific theologians of preparing, by a renewed and more thorough examination of the Gospels, the stones of a new edifice to be reared upon the site laid bare by Strauss's critical labors. Quote, In the darkness which criticism produces, by putting out all the lights hitherto thought to be historical, the eye has first to learn by gradual habit to again distinguish a few single objects, quote, as Strauss himself remarked in his third edition. But this difficult task was not accomplished by those apologists who endeavored to make good the damage by the antiquated arts of the harmonists with their petty concessions, mystifications, and evasions, but by those courageous inquirers who, undeterred by dogmatic considerations, sought by a strictly historical method to set in the true light the exact composition and the mutual relations of the evangelical documents. We have already remarked that Bauer and his disciples, the so-called Tumingen school, took a leading part in this work, while other independent students cooperated with them, supplementing and correcting their labors. 
this however is not the place to follow these inquiries in detail but we must glance at their result as regards the historical treatment of the life of jesus for an entire generation the examination of the literary details of the gospels had occupied theologians so exclusively that the interest in the supreme problems of the evangelical history seemed to have been almost lost sight of but this interest was newly awakened and made itself felt far beyond learned theological circles by the nearly simultaneous publication of Renan's Vie de Jésus and Strauss's second Les Bagnesu für das Deutsche Volk from 1864. These two works, with all their dissimilarity, resemble each other in this, that they were both written by scholars of the highest eminence, not for the learned world, but for educated people generally, both throwing overboard, therefore, the ballast of learned detailed criticism, and presenting the results of their inquiries in a language intelligible to everybody, and attractive from its literary excellence. They are alike also in this, that both subordinate the criticism of the gospel traditions to a positive description of the personality of Jesus, of his essential religious tendency and genius, of his relation to the messianic idea of his nation to the law and the temple to the hierarchy and religious and political parties of his time both seeking an explanation of the reformatory success of the commencement and also of the tragical issue of his labours in these factors but inasmuch as strauss confines himself to what he can deem the ascertained or probable facts after a strict critique of the sources the portrait delineated by him turns out naturally somewhat indistinct and defective in its outlines the meagreness of the result answers to the caution of his historical conscience renan on the other hand feels no such scruples in his criticism of the sources he goes to work with a much lighter heart and claims for the biographer the right to help himself over the lacunae and obscurities or contradictions of his authorities by calling in the aid of the creative imagination with its powers of combination and inference by this means he has succeeded in presenting a life of jesus distinguished for its epic vividness and dramatic development but its aesthetic charm has been purchased at the price of its historical solidity this novelistic feature becomes most questionable when it wanders into the vagaries of the naturalistic explanation of the miracles for instance the raising of lazarus and in such cases casts reflections on the moral character of jesus on the other hand for renan must be claimed the merit of having emphasized the social aspects of the messianic mission of jesus and of having attempted to sketch the development of his inner life a change in the phases of his reformatory labors as to strauss's second life of jesus its strength lies as in the first not so much in the first part which deals with the positive side of the history as in the second part where it comes to treat of the mythical side of the history but in the second work in the place of the analysis of the traditions given in the first we get a synthetic presentation of the rise and gradual growth and elaboration in more and more exalted forms of the idea of the christ of mythical tradition the successive stages of the development of the christian consciousness are set forth by reference to the genesis of the ideas of christ's person 
power and supernatural exaltation thus this genetic method of treatment followed in the latter work supplants and confirms the result of the former one while the latter had shown that the miraculous narratives of the gospels are myth and not history the new life shows how in these myths after all history is reflected namely the history of the religious consciousness of the christian community the great advance of this new treatment upon that of the previous work was the fruit of the intervening studies of bauer and his disciples to which renan to the detriment of the critical and historical value of his work had not paid sufficient attention the two works of renan and strauss were followed by a deluge of literature on the life of jesus the historical value of which is very various to give an account of all these books would require more space than is at my disposal i must confine myself to the work of theodore keim an english translation of which has been published under the theological translation fund the work is so distinguished by the richness of its learned material and the ability with which it is handled as to constitute it the best representation of the present condition of our knowledge of the life of jesus keim's standpoint differs from that of strauss by the warmth of religious feeling and enthusiasm which pervades his entire work while at the same time no fetters are laid upon the critical reason freedom and piety join hands in order to be just to the double claim which the truth of history on the one hand and the church on the other are justified in presenting the most brilliant part of keim's work is his delineation of the religious personality of jesus how in it were combined in a unique degree strength and harmony complete openness towards the world with perfect inwardness towards god so as to become the source of a new religion in which self-surrender and liberty humility and energy enthusiasm and lucidity are blended and the chasm of previous ages between god and man filled up his description of the psychological development of the messianic consciousness of jesus out of inward experiences and outward impressions and impulses is also drawn with great delicacy of touch at all events it is an able and suggestive effort to penetrate as far as the state of the sources admits by means of sympathetic and reproductive divination to the personal experiences and mental states of the religious genius from whom a new epoch in the world's religious history proceeded still as in the kindred efforts of renan weizsacker beschlag and weiss we may never forget how much with the poverty of the ascertained historical materials is left to the uncontrolled power of combination and divination in other words to the imagination which at best can do no more than roughly and approximately arrive at the truth while it may no less easily go far astray it is certainly to be deemed an advance that in the more recent works on the life of jesus the subject of main interest is not so much the external miracles as the internal the problems of the peculiar nature and development of his religious consciousness and character his view of his vocation his attitude towards the messianic idea and the like yet this advance is manifestly attended by the temptation to sacrifice the caution of historical criticism to the production of a biography as rich in detail and as dramatic in movement as possible 
and to represent things as the ascertained results of critical examination which are really nothing more than subjective combinations of the writers to which a certain degree of probability may be attached though the possibility will always remain that the actual facts were something quite different the subtle examination of the question whether jesus himself ever declared himself to be the messiah or spoke of his return in celestial glory by martinau in his seat of authority in religion is in this respect deserving of all attention and is of great value as at least supplying a needed lesson in caution in view of the excessive confidence with which questions such as these have been treated by renan keim and later writers in any case the reserve and caution of strauss are quite justified as a corrective and counterpoise to the extravagances committed in the opposite direction with regard to the miraculous narratives of the gospels the advance of more recent criticism beyond the first book of strauss has been in two directions first these questions no longer constitute the central point of historical interest but are subordinated in importance to the problems of the religious consciousness of jesus secondly we do not now seek to interpret these narratives so exclusively and without distinction from the one motive of the transference to jesus of the types of the old testament but the great difference between the various narratives of miracles is clearly recognized and various clues are accordingly used in their explanation whilst in one narrative we observe merely symbols of religious and dogmatic ideas in others we discover behind the glorifying tendency to idealism some background of historical fact for instance in the miracles of healing as is now very generally acknowledged it cannot be denied it is true that with this perfectly legitimate endeavor is connected the peril of falling back into the old abuses of rationalistic artifice even keim has not quite escaped this danger inasmuch as he abandons the basis of strict history in the case of the story of the resurrection of jesus and makes concessions to supernaturalistic dogma as the sequel of which the old doctrine of miracles may be readmitted into lives of jesus as is really the case in the works of beschlag and weiss in this danger appears the necessity for the continued prosecution of the negative work of criticism a duty as yet by no means supererogatory the inclination to sink into the slumber of dogma is so natural to every generation that the most uncompromising critical intellect must without intermission stand upon the watch against it and as this task was performed by strauss in his first life of jesus in a manner that may serve as a model for all time the book like every truly classical work must ever retain its value strauss's criticism broke down the ramparts of dogmatism new and old and opened to the inquiring mind the breach through which the conquest of historical truth might be won otto fleiderer certior factus ex britannia librum meum quem de vita jesu undecim abhing anis composui virorum eius modi studiis faventium cura in linguam Britannicam translatum, brevi illic in publicum proditurum esse, 
Paelitia anxietate temperata comoveor. Nam ut gratulari sibi aequum est auctorem, cuius opidi contigit, patriae terrae ac linguae fines transgredi, ita solicitudo eundem subeat necesse est, nequi domi placuit liber, foris displiceat, aut cuius interpopulares vel adversariorum numero creuerat auctoritas, apud exteros neglectus in obscuro maneat. Solum enim coelumque vix minore libri, quam plantae periculo mutant. Et facilius quidem transtuleris opera in ilis rebus versantia, de quibus inter diversas gentes communis quidam aut certe parum discrepant sensus obtinet, ut quae poetae aut disciplinarum quas exactas dicunt periti proferunt, inter politiores huius seculi nationes, fere solent esse communia. Neque tamen vel hoc in librorum genere plane aequum germano cum Britannis aut Gallis certamen. Peregrina enim cum facilius nostra, quam ilorum et lingua et indoles recipiat, longe frequentius poetae quoque ilorum in nostram, quam nostri in ilorum linguas transferuntur. At germanicum opus in theologiae et philosophiae quasi confinio versans, si traicere in Britanniam parat, ne illa quidem inter utramque gentem sensus et studiorum communione adiuatur. Tam diversa enim utrinque via istae disciplinae processerunt, ut in theologia impii, in philosophia superstitiosi Britannis Germani idem videamur. Cum iis, qui in Britannia ausi sunt, historias judaiorum et christianorum religione sacratas, examini ut aiunt critico subicere, nihil agendum esset, nisi ut locii sui atque humii principia philosophica, sicut ad reliquas omnes historias, ita ad illas etiam, quas legibus istis huiusque superstitio subtraxerat ad hiberent. In Germania ad hoc monstri res degenerauerat, ut superstitioni a theologorum potissima parte de relictae philosophia succurreret. Critico ergo, non simplex sanae philosophiae contra theologorum superstitionem, sed duplex et contra philosophorum ex senioribus principiis deductas ineptas conclusiones, et contra theologorum propter philosophica ista auxilia ornamentaque inflatam atque induratam superstitionem, certamen ineundum esset. Ex hoc rei statu proprie germanico natum opus meum, nominibus insuper atque opinionibus theologorum ac philosophorum nostratium refertum, nec scolarum etiam vocabula, quibus nostrae tantum aures asuevere, satis evitans, a Britannorum usu ingenioque 
non posse non abhorrere, tam probescio, ut de translato in eorum linguam licet interpretatio, quantum quidem eius inspicere potuenim, et accurata et perspicua sit, et librum, quantum in ipsa est, popularibus commendet, num gaudendum mihi magnopere sit, me Hercule, nesciam. Acedit, quod a primo libri mei ortu duo lustra, et a recentissima etiam editione, unum iam lustrum intercesit. Ut tum, cum opus incoabam, via incedebam, quam pauci ingressi, totam emensus nemo erat, ita per primum ilud lustrum, nullae fere nisi adversariorum voces audiebantur, principia mea negantium, et historiam in evangeliis vel meram, vel levissima, tantum erroris rumorisve adspersione tinctam contineri affirmantium, cum quibus non modo non disputandum, sed a quibus ne discendum quidem quidquam erat, quod ad rem et ad librum vere emendandum pertineret, Proximo demum lustro, viri vestigia mea non refugientes, neque evitantes, sed persequentes, ubi ego substiteram longius progressi, rem revera juverunt atque promoverunt. Narrationes in evangeliis traditas, quas rerum vere gestarum esse persuadere, mihi non potueram, mitorum in modum qui inter antiquas gentes inveniuntur, aut in ore populi a minutis initiis coaluisse, et eundo creuisse, aut a singulis, sed qui vere ita evenisse superstitiose in animum induxerant, fictas esse existimaueram. Quod ut sufficit explicandis plerisque eorum, quae dubitatione moventia tribus prioribus evangeliis continentur, Ita quarti evangelii auctorem ad tuendas et illustrandas sententias suas haud raro meras fabulas scientem confinxisse abaurio teologo tubingensi doctissimo nuper ita demonstratum est ut critici me iudicii rigori religiosius quam verius temperasse intelligam dumque prima a Christo secula Accuratius perscrutantur, partes partiunque certamina, quibus noa ecclesia comovebatur, in apricum proferunt, narrationum haud paucarum, quas fabulas esse, ego bene quidem perspexeram, sed unde ortae essent demonstrare non valueram, veram in ilis primae ecclesiae motibus originem de tegere teoligis tubingensibus contigit. In perfectum igitur opus meum, ut solent rerum initia, non obhoc tamen, quod sententiae deest, timerem, ne abritanis sperneretur, nisi formae etiam ilud quod supradixi peregrinum, atque inusitatum accederet. Qui si suum henelium non audiverunt, de iis dem rebus cum Britannis Britannice agente, commodo audient, si quis Germanus surget, 
cuius liber cum sua lingua non potuerit cogitandi quoque disputandique morem prorsus germanicum exuere sed absit omen verbis meis atque ut pridem in germania ita mox in britannia jaceat liber hic eis ptosin cae anastasin polon cae eis semeion antilegomenon opos an apocalypstosin et polon cadion dialogismoi strauss scribebam helibronae medio mensis aprilis anno milésimo octingentésimo quadragésimo sexto preface to the first german edition it appeared to the author of the work the first half of which is herewith submitted to the public that it was time to substitute a new mode of considering the life of jesus in the place of the antiquated systems of supernaturalism and naturalism this application of the term antiquated will in the present day be more readily admitted in relation to the latter system than to the former for while the interest excited by the explanations of the miracles and the conjectural facts of the rationalists has long ago cooled the commentaries now most read are those which aim to adapt the supernatural interpretation of the sacred history to modern taste nevertheless in point of fact the orthodox view of this history became superannuated earlier than the rationalistic since it was only because the former had ceased to satisfy an advanced state of culture that the latter was developed while the recent attempts to recover by the aid of a mystical philosophy the supernatural point of view held by our forefathers betray themselves by the exaggerating spirit in which they are conceived to be final desperate efforts to render the past present the inconceivable conceivable the new point of view which must take the place of the above is the mythical this theory is not brought to bear on the evangelical history for the first time in the present work it has long been applied to particular parts of that history and is here only extended to its entire tenor it is not by any means meant that the whole history of jesus is to be represented as mythical but only that every part of it is to be subjected to a critical examination to ascertain whether it have not some admixture of the mythical the exegesis of the ancient church set out from the double presupposition first that the gospels contained a history and secondly that this history was a supernatural one rationalism rejected the latter of these presuppositions but only to cling the more tenaciously to the former maintaining that these books present unadulterated though only natural history science cannot rest satisfied with this half-measure the other presupposition also must be relinquished and the inquiry must first be made whether in fact and to what extent the ground on which we stand in the gospels is historical this is the natural course of things and thus far the appearance of a work like the present is not only justifiable but even necessary it is certainly not therefore evident that the author is precisely the individual whose vocation it is to appear in this position 
he has a very vivid consciousness that many others would have been able to execute such a work with incomparably superior erudition. Yet, on the other hand, he believes himself to be at least possessed of one qualification which especially fitted him to undertake this task. The majority of the most learned and acute theologians of the present day fail in the main requirement for such a work a requirement without which no amount of learning will suffice to achieve anything in the domain of criticism, namely, the internal liberation of the feelings and intellect from certain religious and dogmatical presuppositions, and this the author early attained by means of philosophical studies. If theologians regard this absence of presupposition from his work as unchristian, he regards the believing presuppositions of theirs as unscientific. Widely, as in this respect, the tone of the present work may be contrasted with the edifying devoutness and enthusiastic mysticism of recent books on similar subjects, still it will nowhere depart from the seriousness of science, or sink into frivolity, and it seems a just demand in return that the judgments which are passed upon it should also confine themselves to the domain of science and keep aloof from bigotry and fanaticism the author is aware that the essence of the christian faith is perfectly independent of his criticism the supernatural birth of christ his miracles his resurrection and ascension remain eternal truths whatever doubts may be cast on their reality as historical facts the certainty of this can alone give calmness and dignity to our criticism, and distinguish it from the naturalistic criticism of the last century, the design of which was, with the historical fact, to subvert also the religious truth, and which thus necessarily became frivolous. A dissertation at the close of the work will show that the dogmatic significance of the life of Jesus remains inviolate. In the meantime, let the calmness and insensibility with which, in the course of it, criticism undertakes apparently dangerous operations be explained solely by the security of the author's conviction that no injury is threatened to the Christian faith. Investigations of this kind may, however, inflict a wound on the faith of individuals. Should this be the case with theologians, they have in their science the means of healing such wounds, from which, if they would not remain behind the development of their age, they cannot possibly be exempt. For the laity, the subject is certainly not adequately prepared, and for this reason the present work is so framed, that at least the unlearned among them will quickly and often perceive that the book is not destined for them. If, from curiosity or excessive zeal against heresy, they persist in their perusal, they will then have, as Schleiermacher says on a similar occasion, to bear the punishment in their conscience, since their feelings directly urge on them the conviction that they understand not that of which they are ambitious to speak. A new opinion which aims to fill the place of an older one ought fully to adjust its position with respect to the latter. Hence, the way to the mythical view is here taken in each particular point through the supernaturalistic and rationalistic opinions and their respective refutations. But, as becomes a valid refutation, 
with an acknowledgment of what is true in the opinions combated and an adoption of this truth into the new theory this method also brings with it the extrinsic advantage that the work may now serve as a repertory of the principal opinions and treatises concerning all parts of the evangelical history the author has not however aimed to give a complete bibliographical view of this department of theological literature but where it was possible has adhered to the chief works in each separate class of opinions for the rationalistic system the works of paulus remain classical and are therefore pre-eminently referred to for the orthodox opinions the commentary of olhausen is especially important as the most recent and approved attempt to render the supernatural interpretation philosophical and modern while as a preliminary to a critical investigation of the life of jesus the commentaries of fritzsche are excellently adapted since they exhibit together with uncommon philological learning that freedom from prejudice and scientific indifference to results and consequences which form the first condition of progress in this region of inquiry the second volume which will open with a detailed examination of the miracles of jesus and which will conclude the whole work is already prepared and will be in press immediately on the completion of the first the author tumingen twenty fourth may eighteen thirty five preface to the fourth german edition as this new edition of my critical examination of the life of jesus appears simultaneously with the first volume of my dogmatique it will not be expected to contain any essential alterations indeed even in the absence of other labors i should scarcely have been inclined to undertake such on the present occasion the critical researches prompted by the appearance of my work have after the stormy reaction of the first few years at length entered on that quiet course which promises the most valuable assistance towards the confirmation and more precise determination of the negative results at which i have arrived but these fruits still require some years for their maturing and it must therefore be deferred to a future opportunity to enrich this work by the use of them i could not persuade myself to do so at least in the present instance by prosecuting a polemic against opposite opinions already in the last edition there was more of a polemic character than accorded with the unity and calmness proper to such a work hence i was in this respect admonished rather to abridge than to amplify but that edition also contained too much of compliance the intermingling voices of opponents critics and fellow-laborers to which i held it a duty attentively to listen had confused the idea of the work in my mind in the diligent comparison of divergent opinions i had lost sight of the subject itself hence on coming with a more collected mind to this last revision i found alterations at which i could not but wonder and by which i had evidently done myself injustice in all these passages the earlier readings are now restored and thus my labor in this new edition has chiefly consisted in wetting as it were my good sword to free it from the notches made in it rather by my own grinding than by the blows of my enemies the author stuttgart seventeenth october eighteen forty
End of preface.